Hello everyone, it's fantastic to be with you today. What a great uh, time we've already had so far together. Uh, my name is Rich, for those of you who don't know me, and I'm going to be continuing this morning our teaching series that we've been looking at over the last uh, few weeks, which we've called Recalibrate. And if you've uh, joined us uh, online before, you'll know that we've been looking at how small adjustments in our lives can make a big difference to the way that we live and how we follow Jesus together. Usually, uh, just before uh, the talk, we would have had the Bible passage uh, that we're going to be looking at read out for us. Um, I'm going to do things slightly differently today. I'm going to kind of teach through the passage as we go along. It's a story of an encounter with Jesus and a parable that he tells in response. And hopefully we're going to see what it has to say to us today. And the encounter is framed around one central question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And maybe for some of us, that's a question that we hadn't given much thought to until earlier this year. If you're anything like me, maybe you lived with a general sense that um, Jesus' teaching is kind of a vague and mysterious, everyone is my neighbor. That's kind of what he teaches, right? Be nice to everyone, you're pretty much on the right track. But if you're anything like me, it can be hard sometimes to turn that general sense of, oh, I should be a neighbor to everyone, and visualize it into the face of a person that I'm called to love and to serve. And then earlier this year, we were hit with everything that's been going on in the world. We were hit with lockdown. And all of a sudden, one of the things that came out of that was an awakening to the presence of our physical neighbors with us. I don't know about you, maybe you encountered a neighborhood WhatsApp group set up to support those self-isolating. Maybe you saw signs in the windows for those needing extra care. Maybe you joined in with the weekly NHS clap, kind of poking your head out your window and seeing others from along your street doing the same. Despite the reality of being locked in, the very difficult and quite extreme isolation for many, there was a sense, I think, of togetherness in it that was embodied in our physical neighbors. And uh, for some of us, maybe that was the first time that we had encountered anything like that. And as we settle into our new lockdown, um, this next one that we're currently living through, uh, I think slightly better equipped, hopefully, uh, to stay connected with one another, as Mike was talking about last week. That question, again, is a live one for us. Who is my neighbor? And perhaps just as importantly, what therefore should I do in response? And that's the conversation we see unfolding in Luke chapter 10 from verses 25 to 37. If you have a Bible um, with you or near you, maybe uh, kind of grab it, pick it up and follow through the story with me just to check I'm not making it all up uh, as I go along. But what we find uh, in Luke chapter 10 is that an expert in the Jewish law, a scholar has come to Jesus. He's not come with pure intentions, but he's come to test Jesus. And in doing so, to try to justify himself, to reassure himself that his life is on the right track, that Jesus' teaching doesn't really impact anything about the way that he is living, that he's pretty much got the religious life 
sorted. And so he comes to Jesus and he asks him, first of all, a different question. The kind of question any religious leader might expect. What should I do to inherit eternal life? But rather than answering, Jesus pushes the question back to him. He asks the man, well, what do you think? You're an expert in the law. What do you read in the Jewish scriptures? He doesn't uh, launch into a monologue like I might be tempted to do whenever uh, a friend of mine, a colleague or someone like that um, asks me a question about Christianity. I know my first response is quick, get in the answer as, as soon as I can. Jesus' response is no, let's ask a question in return. And in doing so, he opens up the conversation to get to the root of not just what the question is, but why it's being asked. When you read through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus does this all the time. He's always asking people questions in order to draw out what's in their hearts. And the man replies pretty well. He quotes from two books of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and he says, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. That's a, a good answer. It's a solid answer. And he goes on. He says, you must love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus commends the man for his response. He says, do this and you will live. Go out from this place knowing that you are loved and love in return. Love God and love your neighbor. And you're on the right track. But that's where the man's heart comes out. That's where what's really going on for him is revealed. In the New Living Translation, it says he wanted to justify his actions. And so he asks another question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? What's the limit of the love that I'm to show? How little love can I get away with showing and in response, Jesus tells one of the most famous parables of all times. He says this, there was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when he's attacked by bandits. They strip him of his clothes, they beat him up, they leave him half dead beside the road, broken, helpless, and alone. It is a desperate situation for the man to be in, a hopeless position. But then a miracle, a miracle, a priest, one of the leaders of the Jewish people, someone to be looked up to, someone to be admired as an example of how to live faithfully following God, someone for whom loving and caring for their fellow Jews was basically in the job description. You almost couldn't ask for a better person to come along. And yet, the priest crosses over to the other side. He carries along on his way. A while later, another man passes by. And again, it's someone that the helpless man could only have dreamed of, an assistant at the temple. A religious man, 
and yet one who's perhaps even more likely to help him. He has less reason to worry about uh, status or about uh, ritual cleanliness that some commentators think might have been behind why the priest didn't stop and help. And the temple assistant, he gets closer. He comes right in to see the man. And then he too crosses over and passes by. And last of all comes a Samaritan. It's hard for us in the West to get any accurate sense of the hatred that existed in that culture between Jews and Samaritans. If you've been following uh, the US election campaign like I have, um, the election that will never end perhaps, imagine the bitterness and the division that we've seen in that ratcheted up by like a hundred and you're maybe getting close. For the Jewish people of the day, Samaritans are not just outcasts, they are the villains of the whole piece. In modern terms, they are the Hamas militant to the Israeli farmer. They're the Israeli army commando to the Palestinian youth. The Samaritans' arrival is a bombshell for the original listeners. And yet, in the most unlikely of encounters, the Samaritan is the one struck by compassion. He goes over. He steps past the threshold of observing to be physically present with the man. He binds up his wounds and he soothes them with oil and wine. It's not a coincidence that those are two of the main elements regularly used in temple worship. The priest and the temple assistant would have been used to pouring out oil and wine on the altar as a sacrifice to God. And yet here it's upside down. The Samaritan isn't just being a nice guy. He's participating in an act of worship through the love and service that he displays to the wounded man. And nor does he finish there. He places the man on his donkey. He leads him to the next inn. He pays for his care and he promises to settle any future debt that he incurs in his recovery as well. The man isn't just saved from death. He's saved from the very likely prospect of having to sell himself into slavery to pay for his ongoing care. Everything about this is a costly act by the Samaritan. Not just financially, but also because the personal risk for a Samaritan man to walk into a Jewish inn with a wounded Israelite on his donkey would have been extremely significant. His whole response from the moment he comes across this man is an example of an extravagant, costly, risk-taking love. And back at the interaction between Jesus and the expert in the law, the implication is clear. Who was a neighbor to the man left robbed, abandoned, and half dead? Jesus asks. The one who showed him mercy, 
is the response. Go, says Jesus, and do the same. Do you see there in that last little section how Jesus flipped the question that the teacher of the law asked him right at the very start? From who is my neighbour, which puts the emphasis on uh, others and their relationship to us, to who was a neighbour to this man, which puts the responsibility on to ask, to ask ourselves the question, to whom must I become a neighbour? It's not who is my neighbour out there. It's how can I become a neighbour? It's not about identifying a neighbour, about testing the limits of the love that we are called to show. It's about being a neighbour. Becoming a neighbour, blowing open the limits we've placed in our own hearts about who we can show love to. For some of us, that will be a familiar story. For others, maybe we're hearing it for the first time. But there are four things that I want to draw out of it for us today that I hope can help us in this season as we seek to recalibrate, to use this moment of a world in turmoil to reset some things in our lives that will help us build in patterns of seeing, enjoying, and revealing Jesus that will serve us well for years to come. And the first is this, know the true neighbor. Know the true neighbor. The story comes in the context of a discussion around what it is to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then from that place, to go out to love those around us. But it all flows from an understanding that we are loved, as we've heard already today, we're loved wholly and completely and entirely by the true good Samaritan, the true good neighbour, the one who comes to broken people, those on their way to death who binds up their wounds and who in an act of true worship rescues them from death and from slavery, who bears the cost of their restoration in himself, paying it all in the moment of rescue and long into the future. It's Jesus. This is what he comes to do for each of us. We love because Jesus loved perfectly the only one in all of history to truly love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, to truly love others as himself. If we go out to love others on the basis of how they might love us in return, we'll always be disappointed. But if we love because of how we've been loved, in response to what God has done for us, to what Jesus has won through his life, death, and resurrection, we'll be empowered to keep loving whatever response we receive. Second thing, become a neighbor. Become a neighbor. When Jesus reframes that question, when he makes it, to whom must I become a neighbor? When he puts the emphasis back on us, 
when he, by the power of his spirit, speaks that question into our hearts today, we need to allow it to radically shake our expectation of who God might be calling us to serve. To whom must I, must you, become a neighbour? Which person is least like me, economically, socially, ethnically, ideologically? And how can I serve them in their moment of need? Will I allow God to blow open the limits that I've placed on who he might be calling me to? That is, in many ways, a harder work than the physical acts of kindness themselves. It's a work to rid ourselves of prejudice. The unconscious or unseen ways that we favour people who look and speak and think and act like us. But it's a work that can't be skipped. It's a work that needs to take place in us before we can ever become the kind of neighbour that Jesus is calling us to be. Here's the thing. Becoming a neighbour is an act of the heart before it is ever an act of the hands. Third thing, love like a neighbour. Neighbours are marked by compassion, not position. Thabati Anyabwile writes, the priest and the temple assistant are religious leaders in Israel. They believe all the right things and worship in all the right ways, but they are not neighbours to this hurting man. It's possible to be deeply religious in one sense, and yet treacherously unloving in another. Logging into Oasis on a Sunday morning doesn't make us a neighbour. Having a particular position in church or in the world, a status in society, a job or role, a family or possessions. What makes us a neighbour is what defined the Samaritan in contrast to the priest and the temple assistant. They all saw the wounded man, but only one of them was filled with compassion. Only one allowed his heart to break for the broken. Only one moved from observing to engaging. And that takes courage and it takes cost. To love like a neighbour takes the mental step to lower our defences and allow our hearts to be joined to those in desperate need. It's an act of sacrifice. But it's the kind of sacrifice that, as we see in the story, is true worship. It's the kind of worship that God loves more than anything. To act justly to love mercy, to walk humbly with him. Fourthly and finally, live like a neighbour. Live like a neighbour. We don't always need to seek out our supposed worst enemy 
to be a good neighbour. Right at the start, I mentioned that this year has given us perhaps a renewed perspective on our physical neighbours. And that's a great place to start. It's a great question to ask, who is already my neighbour? In our streets, in our workplaces, in our schools and universities, in our recoveries, in our hobbies and groups that we're part of. Who has God already put on my path? It might not be loads and loads of people. It might just be that one elderly neighbour who needs help putting their bins out. It might be that one colleague who's having a tough time that you can encourage with a bunch of flowers. It might be that one family who's self-isolating that you can cook a meal for. It might be that one friend that you're going to commit to praying for at the same time every day, and you're even going to go so far as setting a reminder on your phone so you don't forget to do it. That's a challenge and an invitation for all of us. How can you go? How can I go and do the same this week? This parable isn't just an interesting story. It's an invitation to a life of radical love that flows from the love that we are invited to know and enjoy. Here are those four things again. We know the true neighbour. We become a neighbour. We love like a neighbour. And we live like a neighbour. In this season of uncertainty and separation, this season of deep, deep need, we go out as those who are loved to love, those invited to participate in God's new kingdom by becoming a neighbour to others as Jesus became a neighbour to us. In a moment's time, we're going to respond in worship. The band are going to lead us in a song which is all about seeing the wonder of who God is, the majesty of what he has done for us and crying out with our hearts that we might go and do the same, that we might live for him as he has lived and given himself for us. And as we do, I want to encourage us wherever we are in this moment, just allow God to meet with you. Allow him to stir your heart again for that one person, allow him to speak into your mind that image of one person, maybe that he's calling you to this week. One bridge he's calling you to build. One place of division that he's calling you to restore. One person in need that he's calling you to help. Allow him to stir your heart with the love that he has lavished upon you as he calls you to go and do the same. Why don't I pray? And then I'll hand back to Rod and the band. Lord Jesus, I thank you 
that in this story, you're not giving us a set of rules to go and obey. What you're giving us is a picture of a God of extravagant love who bore the greatest cost of all time in giving himself for us that we might know that we are loved, that we might receive that, and that we might go and do the same in each of our unique situations and circumstances and contexts and cultures that you've placed us. I thank you, Lord, that the work of living and speaking for you is not something that is restricted to an elite tier of Christians, No, your desire is that your spirit would fill your people in every place that they have been placed. They would go out loving with the same love that you have loved them with. And so Jesus, catch our hearts up again. Jesus, stir our hearts and our minds with what you want to do amongst us, what you want to do in and through us. Use this season to open our eyes to who you are calling us to be and to fill us again with the wonder of who you are. In Jesus' name.